Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this night and we're thankful for each one that is here. We ask you to work in our hearts. Give us grace to study your word and learn from it. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. If you need an outline, wave your hand there. I think Brother Jason might have a few more. This is Lesson 20 in our study of the Gospels. We are looking at a harmony of the four gospel record here of just taking the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and and putting them together. Now, uh, we do not want to skip verses and just leave text out, but uh, we are trying to, as much as we can, follow the chronology Uh, the natural unfolding of events, and that does not always mean that we just go from one verse to the next verse. And as we talked about last week, Jesus did not only say things once. Sometimes he said them more than once. And so uh, you, you may think that he said it here, and then it looks like he said it again over, over here. Those could be two completely separate events. And so we're just following this through. We come here to uh, Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to start. And one of the things that was constant through Jesus' ministry was the attacks of those that... Uh, were against him and realized that these attacks did not come from the Romans. These attacks did not come from the heathen paganistic Jews who were living among the religious Jews. In fact, the attacks did not come from the nominally religious Jews who showed up. The stiffest attacks came from the most religious of the Jewish people. And of course, what happens is, in your endeavor for religion, uh, if it's not the truth from the Bible, you have to protect it. You wonder why there are so many wars fought among religions. Somebody said, religion is the problem. Well, I'd agree with you to a point. False religion is the problem because a false religion must be defended. It must be protected. A false religion is a very fragile thing. Just like we have special places all over this country for people who think things that just aren't true. Do you know what I'm talking about? They think that they are Napoleon recreated or that they are some great artist because their artwork looks like Pablo Picasso's. Uh, All you have to do is give Jason a crayon. He can do better than that. Amen? Uh, The simple truth of the matter is, I'm talking about my youngest son, not not brother Jason, just so... I think everybody understood that, right? I want to be careful here. Uh, Just give uh, my... uh, How old are you, Jason? 
you're this many, right? Three-year-old son, and uh, they call it art. No, it, it's protection for minds that don't think properly. And why do you think armies have to defend communism? They build high walls, not to keep people out, but to keep people in. We in America are trying to build a wall to keep illegal immigration out. Do you see the difference? You see, true religion does not need to be protected. That's why it was one of the most destructive forces behind the Iron Curtain. Because if Jesus makes you free, the gulag can't take your freedom away. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is going to be, has been, and will be continually attacked. And as you notice the attack methods, there is nothing too ridiculous to say. I mean, happens in the American political scene all the time, does it not? Uh, was there, I mean, it was purely coincidental that the 500 Tea Party groups were targeted by the IRS. I mean, we all understand that, right? Nobody did anything intentional, and, and there was no desire upon anybody's part to single anybody out. But I think it was about 1,500 liberal groups got approved during the same time without any scrutiny at all. It's all by accident, isn't it? No. When you are projecting a lie, you will go to any degree to protect it. Scary stuff, is it not? And so here, we'll just see how exceeding... Crazy, uh, unbelievably, uh, I don't know, what, what's a good word for non-rational thinking? Uh, I mean, here's what they do. Let's look at verse 14. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. And some of them said, He casteth out devil, devils through Beelzebub, the chief of devils. Now, does anybody remember who Beelzebub was? He was a god of the Philistines. He was known as the god of the flies. Actually, he wasn't the god of the flies. He was the god of what there is before there are flies. He was the god of decomposition, of corruption. Uh, they had to go through the textbooks that Jewish men shouldn't have been studying anyway, trying to find the most vile, reprobate god invented by human beings, the god of corruption, the god of the maggots, we might say, and then they're going to put... Uh, this and attach it to Jesus' character. How utterly ridiculous can you get? Now, 
Look how Jesus responds to their attack. It says, verse 16, And others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. You know, the devil never gives up. When he first tempted Jesus, Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, he said, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and prove that you're who you are. The devil has no new tricks. By the way, the old ones work pretty well now, don't they? And so, verse 17, here's Jesus' response. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against itself falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come unto you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. He saith, I will return unto my house once I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, how many of you understood what Jesus just taught? Honestly and truly. I mean, you got the gist of those words. Just hold up your hands for a minute. We want to do a little exercise here tonight. If you understood those words, basically, just hold your hands up. Jesus said, listen, any kingdom, any, any uh, uh, leader that is divided against himself, his leadership is going to fall. He cannot stand with inward opposition to himself. If Satan is actually fighting Satan then he will destroy himself. That's not how it works. Jesus is saying God will destroy Satan because the next one was you have a strong leader, you have a strong ruler, he keepeth his palace in peace until somebody that's stronger than him comes, breaks down the walls and takes everything from him. What was Jesus saying? He said it can't be Satan fighting Satan because that is nonsense. It is someone stronger than Satan that is destroying his work. Jesus claimed to be stronger than the devil. By the way, who's the only one in the world, in this universe, stronger than the devil? It is God. There is no other place. Jesus was claiming to be God right here. And he said, if you have any questions, you have your people... There was some success at this casting out of demons by 
the disciples of the Pharisees, by the Jewish people, especially by some of the prophets and things in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, listen, the people you know, did they serve the devil and cast him out? Of course not. He said, they'll be your judges. They will prove to you that I am of God. And then he gives a strange little story here. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he's seeking a place to rest. He doesn't find any. And so he finds seven more spirits and he comes back. And the state of the man is worse than when it began. Some of your Bibles will have the worthlessness of self-reformation as a title of this little passage. And that's a pretty good explanation of it. But really what Jesus is trying to say in this passage, if you do not have the protection of the Lord, it's only downhill from here. You cannot fight the power of the devil on your own. It's got to be the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God that protects you. By the way, just a quick question. It always comes up when we cover something like this. Can a Christian be possessed with the devil? And the simple question that answers that is, can the devil and the Holy Spirit live in the same place? Absolutely not. It's not possible. Well, then can the devil push the Holy Spirit out of you and take over you? Again, absolutely not. The scripture teaches that I give unto them what kind of life? Eternal life. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. He said, I have lost none but one, which is the spirit of perdition that the scriptures may be fulfilled. The devil never beats God. That's all through your Bible. Now, can a Christian be influenced? If they choose to ignore God, they can be influenced to an awful lot of rotten things. But let me tell you, you can't lose your salvation because it's kept by Jesus Christ. He is the strong one that overcomes the devil and takes his spoils away. And if you're not trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone, you just have a law in the battle and when round two comes, you're going to be seven times worse off than when you started. That's what's being taught here. Jesus is asserting his authority. Get how, get how this happens. They're coming to him and they say, well, Jesus, the reason you do these good works and have control over the devils because you're the devil. And Jesus says, no, wait a minute. Let me explain one thing to you. You got to be stronger than the devil to beat the devil. And when you do your work, sometimes it gets undone. 
But when I do my work, it cannot be undone. Jesus was asserting his deity and his authority, and these people were so blind. Right over their heads. Didn't catch it at all. Jesus is going to make it more plain in the future, so they do catch it. But we come here to verse 37, and this is interesting, of Luke chapter 11. And Jesus is going to repeat some of the things that he said here in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places. Oh, I'm sorry, let's not skip over verse 27. This is always an interesting little tidbit to catch. And so while Jesus is asserting his authority and proving that he has more power than the devil, and it came to pass as he spake these things, verse 27, I'm sorry, a certain woman in the company lifted up her voice and said, Blessed is your mother. Right? You know, we have a whole bunch of religionists that are out there trying to make something special of Mary. And let me tell you something, Mary was a special woman. She was chosen of God. We're not here to defame her character. We're not here to make her any less of a person than she was. But she did say in Luke chapter 2, I rejoice in my Savior. If you have a Savior, you have to be a sinner. Those are the words of Scripture. Look it up. And this woman brings up Mary. She says, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paths which thou hast sucked. And But he said, Yea, rather, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You want to be as blessed as Mary is? Hear the word of God and keep it. And Jesus said, you're as blessed as Mary. Somebody said, uh, do you have saints in your church? Oh, yes. In fact, everybody's a saint in our church. That's how good of Christians they are at Open Door Bible Baptist. Amen? In order to be a member, you must be a saint. Because all you have to do to be a saint is be saved. Amen? That's what the Bible teaches. There are no special levels of Christianity. Am I allowed to have a little fun? You see, people always want to grab things out of the Word and they want to take attention off of Jesus Christ and put it somewhere else. They want to put the attention on the devil. Now somebody says, let's put the attention on Mary. And Jesus just... Patiently, I don't understand the patience of the Lord, but I'm sure glad he had it. How about you? He said, no, I'm the one stronger than the devil. Uh, Excuse me, Mary was a very special person. Yes, we understand that. But if you want to be as blessed as Mary is, hear my words and keep them. You see, the attention is always on Jesus. Amen? That was the purpose of him being here. And so uh, the people now gather here and Jesus begins to address them as a society. Look at verse 29. 
And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. Was Jesus leaving anybody out? It almost sounds like Paul when he wrote Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is an evil generation, excuse me. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so also shall the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, isn't it interesting that God picked the prophet Jonah? Was Jonah what we would consider a good prophet? No. Was Jonah a willing prophet? No. Did Jonah have a good attitude? No. I mean, Jonah was a pretty pitiful example of a prophet. But can you imagine what Jonah looked like when he showed up in Nineveh? How many of you know what would happen to a person who was inside the stomach being assaulted with digestive juices for three days and three nights? I mean, their skin would be 40 different colors. It would be bleached. And where the acid hit it and the seaweed hit it at the same time, it'd be green. I, you know, I feel sorry for the whale. I really do. But God used him in a very special way. When Jonah got to Nineveh, he was the scariest thing the Ninevites had ever seen. Probably the smelliest, too. I mean, you knew something was coming an awful long way off when Jonah was around. And we don't want to get too gross because I don't want anybody getting sick in the pews here tonight. But uh, that's what happened to Jonah. He, he was regurgitated on the shore. And Jesus said, listen, Jonah was a sign. I'm going to be a sign. I'm going to scare the living daylights out of you. Roman soldiers. They played like dead men. Amen. In fact, when Stephen saw the resurrected Lord, what did the Pharisees and the religious leaders do? They ran upon Stephen and gnashed on him with their teeth. They were insane in their rage against the resurrected Christ. Jesus said, you're an evil generation. You seek a sign. You know, we have lots of people out there seeking signs. Why? Uh, Wait a minute. What's the context? They wanted to put the attention on Beelzebub, the devil. They wanted to put the attention on Mary. Now they're going to do something much more subtle. They're going to take their attention off of Jesus Christ and put it on some type of attending phenomena. And we have entire denominations who are built on attendant phenomena. The founder of the modern-day charismatic movement was an evangelist, a revivalist named Charles Finney. 
who lived in the early 1800s. And people have written books on all of the attendant phenomena that, that went with Finney's meetings. And we have some people today that are just wrapped up in phenomena. Can I challenge you? Get wrapped up in Jesus and the phenomena won't matter anymore. Get wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus said the queen of the south, the Ninevites were going to judge them. The queen of Sheba was going to judge them. The men of Nineveh are going to rise up. And again, how does he do that? He said a greater than Solomon was here. Now, how could Jesus claim this claim here? Did he bring financial prosperity to Israel as Solomon did? Had he built the temple like Solomon had built? I mean, the temple that was standing there was a magnificent thing, but honestly, it wouldn't even have held a thimble to the temple that Solomon built. Solomon's temple was inlaid and overlaid with gold. Do you realize what that means? It sat on top of a mountain. Uh, I wish I knew someone who could do the mathematics to see how far away you could see the gleam of the reflection of the sun off the gold of Solomon's temple. That would be an incredible thing. I'll guarantee it wasn't a mile or five miles. In the setting sun, you would have seen that reflection. I mean, it would have been an amazing thing. This entire city of Jerusalem would have been illuminated with the reflection of the sun off the gold of the temple. I mean, we get excited when we talk about the streets of gold and the pearly gates. But the temple was paved with gold. It was an amazing place. And Solomon's temple actually was filled on more than one occasion with the Shekinah glory of God. Can you imagine this? And Jesus claims to be greater than Solomon. Was Jesus making a mistake? Was he using hyperbole here? <laughs> I mean, come on, let's have a joke. Jesus is greater than Solomon because he is God. Amen? But I wanted to go through that little bit so you could think of what was going through the minds of these people to whom Jesus was talking. Jesus said he's greater than Jonas. He talks about the light repeating from the Sermon on the Mount. And we come down here. Let's look at verse 36 and then we'll try to move on. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Verse 35, take heed that the light which is in thee be not darkness. When we went through the Sermon on the Mount, we spent a lot of time on that verse. You know, there are people who cannot tell light from darkness. They believe that the light in them is darkness. 
It's actually darkness because the Bible says if you do not worship the true God of the Bible, you are full of darkness. But to them, it is light. Who was that twitiot that wrote uh, embrace, uh, uh, Embracing the Light? Shirley MacLaine or something, uh, somebody like that. I don't know. But uh, wrote this book about embracing the light. She was not talking about the light of the scriptures. She was talking about the light that is within you. That light, my friend, is darkness. There are people who cannot tell the difference. They believe that, the well, they can tell the difference because when they are shown the light of the gospel, they hate it and embrace the darkness of this world and claim that to be their guiding light. That'd make a good name for a filthy TV show, wouldn't it? Do you think that's what Jesus was talking about? How many, uh, don't tell me if you watch The Guiding Light. You have to be at least a certain age to have watched that show. And, and Are they still rerunning that thing? If you answer, I'll know you've been watching it, all right? <laughs> I don't know anything about it except I heard stories about it when I was a little kid and saw advertisements and all that stuff. But I'll tell you what, it's just a filthy piece of garbage. And yet, what do they claim? They're being guided by the light. It's what Jesus was talking about. The attention must be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love verse 37. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. Now, why did this Pharisee want Jesus to eat dinner at his house? So he could have a better chance to catch Jesus and accuse him of things that were unbiblical. Isn't it interesting how the world uses hospitality as a snare? I mean, it's just right there. It says, and when the Pharisees, it, it says, Jesus went in to dine, and he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that Jesus had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and platter, but your inward parts is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. And he goes on. And launches into a full scale itemization of the problems and the wickedness of the Pharisees. Now, you talk about reading Dale Carnegie's book, amen? Winning friends and influencing people. Jesus did not pay any attention to decorum because he knew why he had been invited. And again, where was the attention? It was not on the Pharisees and on their traditions. It was on Jesus and his condemnation of the very things that they lived by. And so we go on and Jesus takes care of the Pharisees. Uh, Verse 42, we have to read this. But woe unto you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue 
and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. Now, most people want to leave that verse right there. They want to turn that semicolon into a period, but it's not. There's a connected thought. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. You know what? It's never wrong to tithe. But if you're giving to God, thinking that your righteousness is measured by your giving, guess what? God doesn't accept it. Because if you don't love God, and by the way, if you love God, what do you do? You keep his commandments. I don't care how warm and ushigushy you feel feel inside. If you're not obeying God, if you're not in the struggle to be obedient to God's word, you don't love him. If you can live a life in opposition to the things of the words of this book, you do not love God. You say, but I know how I feel. Oh, let me tell you, there's an awful lot of people that have felt awful good about really rotten things. I don't think we need to go into detail there, but I mean, we can. We, history is full of people who felt good about evil. And then he starts to work on the lawyers. Then, verse 45, then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master... Thus saying, thou reproachest us also. And he said unto them, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. And we come down here, Jesus sums it all up. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will, verse 49, I will send them prophets and apostles, And some of them shall they slay and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Now look at verse 53. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him, seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Now, imagine this. Jesus is teaching and healing. And this chief Pharisee, this important man comes up, this religious leader respected by all and says, Master, I want you to eat at my house. And so Jesus goes over to eat. Do you think the people in the street were hearing the conversation in the house? Uh, Let's read the first verse of chapter 12 here. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, we're not sure whether these events immediately followed or this was the next morning. But let me tell you what happened in that Pharisee's house got around town. And everybody and their brother, as we used to say in Maryland, everybody and their brother showed up. I mean, it was just so full of people 
that nobody could move. And Jesus began teaching his disciples what? Beware ye the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus' condemnation here was wholesale. And he prophesied in chapter 12 that if you're going to serve God, you're going to be attacked by those who do not. And he teaches all through this, and we're going to have some more repeats of different parts. It'll be different than the Sermon on the Mount, but much of the same. Verse 31 of chapter 12 says, But seek ye for, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he talks about here that the, we need to be like servants, watching for the master to come home. In verse 41 then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward upon whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household and give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now, some people have said, Ah, see? You can be a servant of Christ and not make it to heaven. Be appointed with the unbelievers. But rather, understanding Jesus' teaching in the context of Scripture, what he's simply saying here is, there will be many that say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. There are many that are going to claim to be Jesus' servants. But they're not. How can you ensure that you are a servant? It says you need to heed the words of the master. You need to follow and obey Jesus' teaching. You know, there was a... Uh, well, anyway, we won't go there. We're running out of time tonight, but... There are just many, many examples that crowd into my mind of people who claim to follow Jesus but really could care less about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his words because they're too busy trying to keep their tradition. And what we have to do is we have to get rid of the tradition and get to the words. That's why we spend our time in the Bible. And of course... Uh, in this study, we're not doing verse by verse. We're just kind of skimming over. And this whole passage, you can feel the heat building here. And uh, all of the things that are going on. 
And we come here to verse 13, chapter 13, and we'll try to end with this section here, I guess. It says, And there were, there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, why would they tell Jesus this story? Apparently, a group of Galileans had gone down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. They had offended in some way. They had done something that caught Pilate's attention. And he said, you come down to sacrifice. Well, guess what? We'll just sacrifice you along with the animal. That didn't bother Pilate at all. He was used to killing Jews. He loved it. Well, maybe he didn't love it, but he sure did it a lot. It meant nothing to Pilate. But why were they telling Jesus this story? Uh, Where was Jesus reported to be from? Uh, Galilee. They were kind of telling him, Jesus, you better be careful because Pilate's going to kill you. You better be careful what you say because there's somebody bigger than you. His name is Pilate. He, he can put you to death. Do you understand this? Again, always taking the attention off Jesus and putting it somewhere else. Did Pilate have more authority than Jesus? Absolutely not. In fact, when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said, Don't you know that I can release you? Jesus said, He that delivered me to you has the greater sin. You see, Jesus said, My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, we'd fight. But there's nothing here worth fighting for. Besides, I've got a job to do. Amen? He had to obey the Father. So Jesus, again, takes their directional change here. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay. No, they weren't. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Jesus said, those Galileans that Pilate did that to, they're no worse sinners than you are. In fact, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. And what happened? It wasn't Pilate. It was a man named Titus outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Just about 35, 36 years later. And he sent word in, if you'll surrender, I'll save the city. And they said, we're too busy arguing about doctrine. We don't have time to talk to you. And Titus sent the armies in and the city was laid even with the, with the ground. Raised to the ground, every living soul, the few that escaped to Masada were hunted down and eventually chose suicide rather than to face the torture and the slavery of the Romans. But the end of the story was the Romans got them all. There was nobody left to oppose Rome when Rome was done. Jesus said, if you're not going to believe in me, 
you're going to perish just like they did. And you know what? There were many Christians that would later be persecuted by Rome. But their stories are still alive. And their history is still alive because they were members of a church. Just like this one right here. Accepting time and culture. Amen? They held the same book that you hold. Jesus said, of those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt at Jerusalem? Somebody's trying to figure out what this tower in Siloam was, and we don't know. Apparently, there's a part of the city had a tower. Uh, this was something that everybody knew about to whom Jesus was addressing, but we don't have a lot of information on this. And Jesus said, do you think these people that were killed in this tower collapse were greater sinners? He said, no, I'm telling you, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then Jesus gives a parable. He said, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord... Let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then afterward, after that, thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And we'll stop right there. But here's what Jesus said. Jewish law, in the law, it said when you plant a tree... The fruit was counted uncircumcised or uneatable, unclean for the first three years. If we have any horticulturists here today, when you plant a new tree, you pick the fruit off of it because you want the tree to grow and become strong enough to support the fruit. You'll get better fruit if you wait. I remember when my dad planted those little peach trees. First year, it had probably 20 little fuzzballs on it. Dad said, come on, boys, help me pick them all off. And we cried. said, we want peaches. He said, not this year. And then he did it again. You know why? Not because my dad had read it in the Bible. He read it in the Burpees book where he bought the trees from. And, and they said to do this. Why? Because somebody figured out God was smarter than they were. Amen. But here's what Jesus is saying. I gave you three years. He said, I'm going to give you one more chance. Aren't you glad God gives you one more chance? You say, how do I know he's given me one more chance? Uh, are you alive? Okay, he's given you another chance. Use it. Because God is not the God of the ultimate number of chances. He has some set out for you. He will give you opportunities. Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Sounds awful similar to, for the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
You know, there's only one message in your Bible. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And all God's people said. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us to keep our focus on Jesus. Lord, we're thankful for your forgiveness and your great graciousness toward us that you have extended and do extend. And Lord, we are here tonight and we're alive because of the grace of this God that gives us another chance. Lord, let us not allow anything or anyone or any idea to take our attention off of Jesus. Lord, keep us. Keep us close that we may love Thee and serve Thee according to Your words as are recorded in Your Bible. Let us live for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, before we say amen, just want to give you an opportunity to add some of those prayers of your own. We'll have the piano play, and if you need to slip out and spend some time at an altar, the altar is...